0: Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. And now we come uh, to uh, verse 18, and uh, he says this, he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Um, So again, this is part of the prep. You remember last week, we also ran across where he said, you know, before I sent you out and I told you, don't take a purse, don't take a, a, a bag, just take your cloak. And everybody will, you know, you'll have enough people who will be hospitable to you. Just kind of take advantage of that uh, in a good way. Take that opportunity, not take advantage of it. And, um, and, but he said, but now he said, it's not that way. Now you're going to find people are going to be hostile to you um, because they're hostile to me because they're about to kill me. And I'm no longer kind of, kind of the, the, the flavor of the month. I'm no longer popular. And, and um, so people are going to, so now he's continuing that thought. And he says, "Look, as you go out there, as the days go on, just remember: if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Remember that it's about me, and it's not really about you. Try not to, you know, again, be disheartened by it. Try not to take it too hard, and don't take it too personally. And remember that it's about me. And um, and so it's kind of a, you know, you're in good company. You know, if the world hates you, because it, it hated me, and you, you know, that means you're that means you're probably, in a sense, you're following me." um not not that uh not that being hated means you're doing what jesus wants you to do that's a bad lesson to take from this but in their case uh to recognize that they are following uh following appropriately where jesus kind of went he goes on and he says if you belong to the world it would love you as its own and i think part of his his indication here is how small is that you know you now they, they, he's been promising them for months now the kingdom of god explaining to them how it's different from the world and he's essentially saying to them, that's now who you, are, who you belong to. That's now the, what you're a citizen of. And he's telling them, you know, you want to be loved by the world, but to be loved by the world uh, would mean that you're part of the world. And so he's kind of reminding them that, you know, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. So the fact that it doesn't, it means two things. It means that you're following me, which is good. And it means that you're not part of the world you're actually part of the kingdom of god which is also good so he's trying again to prepare them and give them encouragement that as as they are indeed going to be persecuted as they are indeed going to be hated he's giving them an understanding a perspective which will make that possible to continue doing good work and not just respond sort of in in discouragement or anger in response as it is he says you do not belong to the world but i have chosen you out of the world so again don't be surprised that you don't fit in the world anymore. Don't be surprised that they don't treat you as one of their own. Don't be surprised they don't love you. I've told you the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is different. And that means that now you're different. I've told you how the leaders in the kingdom of God are. That's different. You're going to be different. You're not going to be powerful in the way that they understand power. And you're not even sometimes going to be good in the way they understand good. Um, and you're not going to be loved. Um, and that's okay, because I've chosen you out of the world. That's what this has all been about. Um, it wasn't about greater power in the world. Uh, It was about the fact that you now belong to a different kingdom. This is why he says the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. So when he washed their feet and he was trying to explain to them why he did it, this is what he said to them. He told them a servant's not greater than his master, and yet I served you. So if I served you and you're my servants, really, I'm the master, then of course you should also serve. And now he's taking that, that line and reminding them of it, and he's going to make a slightly different point of it. He says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Here the point is, why should you expect, in a sense, to be treated better than I was, right? You're following me. Don't expect you're going to get better treatment than I did, and I got really bad treatment. So again, all the same thing, but, but, but really underneath it all, he's trying to encourage them the world might hate you. If it does, by the way, he doesn't say the world will hate you. He just says they might, they they possibly probably will. But if they do, remember that that's okay, because you're following me and they hate me. It's also okay, because you don't belong to them anymore. You're not part of the world. That's not your, your gang anymore. It's not your citizenship anymore. So that's okay that you're not part of them. Don't expect them to treat you like you are. And number three, if they treated me this badly, what really can you expect because you're following me again you're my you're i'm greater than you and they treated me badly if they persecuted me they will persecute you also if they obey my teaching they will obey yours also so now he's expanding it he's not it's not all that bad he's he's saying that there are also going to be people that are going to listen to you and when they listen to you and when they follow you understand they're following me so both ways both the kind of the credit and the blame if you want go to jesus he's like if you get persecuted it's kind of my fault and if they follow you, that's also my fault. So just understand that it's about me. However they respond, don't take it as personally. Remember, it's about me because you're now citizens of the kingdom of God. He says, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. That's that's going back to the people who persecute you. They don't know God. They say they do. But if they knew God, they would know that I am God. They would know that I am of God. They would know that I'm sent from God. All true statements at once. They would know that, and they don't know that, so they don't know the Father. He said this to the Pharisees several times, that if you, you say you know the Father, but if you did, you'd know me. He said the reverse to the apostles. He said, you know, Thomas said, we've never seen the Father. And he said, well, actually, you have, because you've seen me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because we're the same. We are one and the same. So he says, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. So now he's kind of, well, he goes on, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So now he's kind of expanding. He's saying, look, they don't know God, but they have an excuse for knowing God because I was here, but they didn't listen to me. So because they didn't listen to me, now they're guilty. Now, if I'd never come and I never talked to them, it would be fair for them to say they don't really know God, that that's understandable, that there could be confusion. But I've come, I've been clear, I've set them straight. If they still don't know God, it's not because they didn't tell them. They're, they're, they're running out of excuses for rebelling against God. He goes on. He says, whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Same thing. Not only did Jesus speak to them, but he did miracles. He did incredible miracles to show them that he was God, to show them that, that they should be listening to him. They should have been made aware of it. As it is, he says, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. So they've heard me say the truth. They've seen me do miracles, but they've still chosen to hate me and my father. So they're turning their backs on God. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. Now, he talked a lot about how, you know, they're going to be hated because Jesus is hated. But the question still remains, why do they hate Jesus? And, and he says, you know, the law said they're going to hate the Messiah without reason, And he's even showing that he's given them reason not to hate him by the things he said, by the actions he performed. They could have followed him, but those that don't have chosen not to. And it's very similar uh, to, and i bring this up because, again, you've all all been there. Uh, It's similar to the book of Romans where Paul says that the real problem, the real reason we don't see God is because we refuse to acknowledge him it's not because god hasn't revealed himself he's revealed himself through our consciences he's revealed himself through the through the the universe he's revealed himself through the creation he's revealed himself through jesus none of those we really have no excuse anymore there's just a there's just a, an unwillingness to acknowledge god because of what it means for us for our power for our control and so this is what jesus is essentially saying they hate they hate you because they hate me and they hate me because they hate the father and they only hate the father because they don't want to bow a knee to God. They don't want to let go of their control. They don't want to let go of who he is. They've been given plenty of evidence and plenty of proof through my words and through, uh, my actions. Um, so that's the first sort of thing he says here in in Romans 15 or the second after the vine, any anybody have any comments or thoughts on that before we go on to the next, uh, next sort of sequence of thoughts.
1: This is something that, uh, you pointed out to me in a separate teaching that's pretty much based on a similar, uh, similar scripture. That one of the things I found really encouraging that, uh, that you taught at one time was that I always used to look at this verse and think that they're talking about these, you know, that they're, they're talking about uh, Christian martyrs, and of course, in a, in a certain sense, they are, they're talking about people that. You know, maybe come may become martyrs for the faith or maybe you know extremely persecuted for the faith. but at one point, you also encourage me that uh, they're also just talking about people who uh, who talk bad about you, and you don't necessarily even have to be living out your faith perfectly, but that that you can still find these words encouraging that there's not some like uh litmus tests that you have to meet before these words apply to you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really good, Jolene. And I, I think, you know, it it is easy to I I'm 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 definitely one of those people who takes kind of umbrage when people overstate persecution. But it is true that even in in little ways, people react to knowing that you're a Christian, knowing, you know, that Jesus exists, hearing about Jesus, you know, sometimes everything from from mockery to you know, a lack of respect and underhanded, you know, response to you, slander, you know, assumptions and presumptions connecting us with, with unscrupulous Christians. There's a lot of ways that sometimes people react to conviction or challenge that they feel from Jesus by, by taking it out on us. And that does happen. And again, I, I'm loath to compare that to the persecution the apostles had, but the application of this passage is still true that it's good to remember sometimes it's not really about me, right? They're not really mad at me. They're really reacting to what's going on, you know, in their own, their own world and and their own, you know, that's true anyway. But in the case of with Christianity and with Jesus, it's kind of sometimes particularly strong. There is a spiritual battle that occurs. Sometimes people react really strongly um, if they know that you believe in God, let alone in Jesus. And so I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's good, Jolene. I, I, um, I I I confirm that I that what I said to you I still agree with so I guess that's good so where Jesus is going to go next is 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 connected it's not you know again this is a this is a flow this is a conversation so everything kind of connects into it but it is a, it is a little bit of a, a shift so first he says you know stay connected to the vine that's how you'll bear fruit then he says and when it comes to bearing fruit that doesn't mean people are going to love you people might hate you <laughs> but if they do that's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll stink, but it's okay because they hated me first. So you're on the right track. And then number three, now he's going to say, so let me give you some encouragement though. Let me remind you, you're not going to be alone in this. So that's when he says this. He says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth that goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. So you're the people, he says, you know me, you know me better than anybody, just in practical human terms, you know me better than anybody. You've been with me from the beginning of the ministry. You've been with me through it all. And, and you know, my heart and you know what I've said, and as people slander, you'll be able to say the truth. Uh, you know, the essence not you know, not just, not just the, the, the theology of the gospel, but you know, the heart of God, which I think is just an incredible thing to think about living three years with Jesus, the things they learned just from the way he responded to them, the way he reacted to them, the way he treated them, the kind of, it, it, it just must be amazing to be with someone who has no insecurities and no, you know, selfish ambitions and nothing to get, no wounding that, that or at least the wounding doesn't cause him to wound others, you know, to, to interact with someone who's so completely mature and healthy, completely mature and healthy. Uh, who can love you with that kind of love, that just has got to be, as John often reflects, and as John was writing this, that's life-changing. That's That changes your whole perspective on everything. And so Jesus says, look, you've seen me from the beginning. So when you get out there and the world hates you, your job is still to tell people who I am. Tell people who I am. Tell people why I'm here. Tell people about my mission. Tell people those things that you learned, ultimately the gospel. Um, and but but he says, but you won't be alone in that. I know it's going to be hard because they're going to be hating you and they're going to be persecuting you. So know that the Holy Spirit will be there to remind you. The Holy Spirit will testify to you about me, things maybe you don't understand yet or things you forget. And you then will then testify to other people from that. And then he says, all this stuff I, I have told you so that you will not fall away. Now, it's interesting he says that because he's already told them they're all going to fall away they're going to scatter. The sheep are going to be scattered. He's already told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He's not saying never. He's not saying you'll never fall away. He's saying you won't permanently fall away. He says, I'm telling you all these things so that you'll come back together. I'm telling you these things so that you'll persevere. I'm telling you these things so that you'll continue to to move forward. So in other words, if he said to them, everyone's going to love you, and then everyone didn't love them, that's a shock. That might make it harder to persevere. Now, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, I, I'm convinced would still continue to keep them persevering. But there is a very practical point here to which Jesus is says, I'm telling you about what you need to do to be fruitful. You need to stay with me. I'm telling you about the opposition you're going to encounter. And I'm telling you about the help you're going to have. And as you have, and I'm telling you about the mission that, that you're responsible for. All you have to do is tell people about me. And as you do all that, by by forewarning you, by letting you know this is what it's going to look like, it, I'm helping you to not fall away, and you won't fall away. You'll you'll be there permanently, uh, consistently. You'll be there. Now you may fall away. Te- you will fall away temporarily, even repeatedly in some ways, but not permanently. Never permanently. Um, he he goes on to give some details about some of the things that'll happen to them. Again, to warn them so that they know they know when it happens that Jesus isn't out of control, that they haven't lost the Advocate, that they haven't lost their faith, whatever. They will put you out of the synagogue, he says. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Fascinating, Saul is that guy. Saul is absolutely in that camp before he gets converted that he thinks what he's doing is in service to God. This seems probably amazing to the apostles that they would think people who kill them would actually be in service to God, but that's what happens to Jesus, right? You can question how much they were worried about what God wanted and how much was political, but at least... at least superficially, they claimed that what they were doing was in defense of God. And and so if they did that for Jesus, again, of course, they'll do that for the apostles too. So not only will they put you out of the synagogue, which is probably the worst thing they could imagine, then Jesus goes further. In fact, there will come a day when people will kill you and they will be proud of it. They will think it's the right thing to do. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. goes back to reiterate, why do they hate you? Not because of you, but because they don't know me and they don't know the Father. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me." In other words, all as long as I'm with you, I don't have to explain things ahead of time to you because I'm here. I can, I can guide you through things as we go, but I'm gonna be gone. When this happens, when some of this persecution happens, I won't be here walking side by side with you. I won't be here to answer your questions. Think about how dependent they've become upon Jesus over the last three years. He tells them what to do and where to go. He tells them, you know, they don't want to, they do or don't want to go somewhere. He convinces them otherwise, you know, and they've, they've, because of that, they've been willing to go into dangerous places and do weird things that they wouldn't otherwise have done. They've shared the gospel or shared about the kingdom of God with the Samaritan village. They wouldn't have done that. Jesus has been there step by step to tell them what to do. Do this. Come here. Come with me. They've just followed him. Well now he's saying, "Look, I need to tell you these things ahead of time because I won't be here. I won't be here when you run into this this uh, this conflict. I won't be here when that happens. And so again, all of this, from the from the warnings about what's going to happen to the to the explanation that they will still have an advocate, all of this is to prepare them for the fact that Jesus is going to be gone, something they are barely holding on to at this point or don't even really believe yet. Um, They keep hearing him say it, but it's just very confusing to them, as we're going to see here in a little bit. Um, But now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Now, this is interesting because Peter and Thomas did both ask him that. (laughs) So I think what he means at this point is he means now you don't. He's like, we're past that. He's like, you asked me before, but now I'm sharing these things and you're kind of stunned and you're kind of grief stricken. And that's, that's what he says. He says, None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. It's starting to sink in. They're starting to actually believe he's going somewhere they cannot go. They're starting to be overwhelmed a little bit by the, 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 the warnings he's giving. Even with the encouragement, this is a lot for them to take in. So now this time when he says, I'm going to him who sent me, nobody asks. And he says, I see now that nobody is asking you, uh, where are you going? Because I understand. You're grieving right now. You're you're kind of feeling. You're feeling it. You're starting to feel it. The reality is starting to settle in, and I'm glad because that's part of what I'm trying to do. But then he goes back to, right away to the encouragement. But very truly I tell you, very common phrase of Jesus. He actually says these exact words. Um, uh, old old uh, old timey translation say, "Verily, verily, I tell you," and it just mean it's like this, listen up. If you if you don't hear anything, hear this. You know whatever vernacular. Today means I'm about to say something that you really need to hang your hat on. That That's what he means when he says this, and this is what he says. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I have no idea why this is the case. I, I can't think of any theological reason why Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't be in the same the same space on earth, because they clearly are for all of eternity in heaven. So I, I don't understand, and will be again, obviously, I don't understand why he says he has to go for the Holy Spirit to come. So I, so, if your question is why, you'll you have to find someone smarter than me. I don't know why. But what I can tell you is, he's actually telling them it's a level up. They don't understand that. And I can see why he doesn't feel that humanly. To hear that Jesus is going, and then a spirit that isn't tangible, that they can't feel, that can't give them a hug, that can't grab them by the shoulder and lead them a certain direction, that can't speak to them in the in sort of the, the actual audible words that, that Jesus has done for three years. To say, I'm going away and something more nebulous is coming doesn't sound like leveling up. It sounds like worse. But in fact, Jesus is telling them, I know you don't get it, but the advocate is going to be better, a better leader for you than I am because the Holy Spirit will be inside you. I just walked with you. The Holy Spirit's gonna be part of you. The Holy Spirit's gonna be guiding you at every second. While I was on this earth, I could be with James and John, and maybe I couldn't be with Philip at the same time because he was somewhere else. You know, I had limitations while I walked this earth. I had this, I had to speak. You see that as an advantage, but it's actually a disadvantage because you had to hear me. I had to be within speaking distance. The Holy Spirit's going to be inside you. He's going to speak directly to your hearts and directly to your minds. So I think what he's trying to tell them when he says, it's good for you that I'm going away, again, I don't understand why that has to happen that way. But I think the primary point is making is the Holy Spirit's leadership is more intimate than mine has been. And mine has been incredible, right? Mine has been amazing walking with you, but the Holy Spirit will be able to be with every believer. The Holy Spirit will be able to be with all people. He'll be inside you. You won't ever have to be separate from the Holy Spirit like at times you had to be separate from me. None, all of that is different. So in fact, I know you don't get it, but this is, this is an advantage. This is a leveling up. This is really, really good for you. When he comes, he says, not only that, not only will he be with you, but he's going to do something else that I could only sort of, again, do when people were within earshot of me. He says, When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He's not only going to come speak to you, but he's going to help you by convicting the world that they're wrong. You don't even have to do that. That's not your job. You tell them about me, and the Holy Spirit will be here convicting them. He goes on. He says, that will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Interesting that when he focuses on the judgment of, of the Holy Spirit here, he's not focusing on the judgment of people, but on the fact that the devil's losing, that the devil's being judged, that, that that's what's happening at the cross. So he, I think that the truth about sin is that they need to believe in Jesus. That That's where their conviction comes in. But when he talks about judgment, again, his hope is that people will repent. And the only judgment will be for the devil and his dominions and not for people. And so the good news of the gospel is that the devil will be judged. And so the Holy Spirit's going to teach people about right and wrong, going to convict people, uh, things you don't need to know. And so this is this is his encouragement to them. You'll have an advocate. It'll be better than I am. He'll be with better than I am in the sense of his intimacy with you and his constant presence. and he And he will also convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, yes, Meredith.
2: I also don't know why, like, they can't both be there, like, at the same time. But it does kind of strike me that I think it would be kind of um, possibly, like, confusing. Like, if, well, I mean, the Holy Spirit is, well, I don't know if he's in Jesus or not. But, um, but, I mean, like, Jesus is there. And, like, people are supposed to see like him and put their faith in him and then see him like you know dying and coming back to life and then i don't know if the holy spirit is like in like other people or something that would seem kind of possibly just maybe not i don't know but that that seems like it'd be kind of like could be like distracting or less on jesus but then also like I mean, it seems like the Holy Spirit's role here is to advocate for like Jesus and kind of like talk about like, who Jesus is, and like, promote that and like, make clear everything that has just happened. So that
0: for sure. And I think one good point you're making is that again the question of why does jesus have to leave for the spirit to come that that's confusing and i even wonder if that's a misunderstanding of the words here although it looks like that's what it says but i think the point you're making is the really important point which is that there are different that they just have different tasks and missions at this point and jesus is going back to prepare a place for us there's other reasons that jesus is leaving not just so the holy spirit can come he's also going to prepare a place for us he's also going to prepare for the coming judgment i mean there's there's all sorts of ways it's described what he's doing and the holy spirit's role is as you said to come to counsel to advocate and to to convict the world and so they they have like different tasks and and separate roles and and again what is yeah go ahead
2: oh i was just gonna say too like i was thinking of like john the baptist and his like the point of him was to point to jesus and it's kind of like the holy spirit's point is to like point back to jesus i mean i know it's like no there's more than that
0: that. there's there's a lot of talk in scripture about jesus glorifying the father and the father glorifying the son and the holy spirit glorifying jesus and there is this kind of communication of that You, you know one thing i do want to say just because i think it's good to always bounce back and forth between the two tensions of the trinity is to remember that even in all this yeah jesus the holy spirit and the father are are separate personalities separate persons But they are all still God. So God is with them now, and God will be with them after Jesus leaves. And God is, you know, it's still God. I just want to say that because it's easy to start separating these too much in our brains. So it's important to go back and remember: okay, this is God. This is all God. It's still God. It's not three different gods. It's not, it's not three separate entities. It's all one God who has these three distinct sort of persons. And and I think that's probably imperfect language, by the way, but it's the best over. Uh, 2000 years that we've been able to come up with <laughs> isn't
2: it like an egg
0: No, it's not at all like an egg but thank you very much for uh, adding confusion to the mix that we already have um anybody else have any thoughts on uh on this yes yeah. yes jeff yeah i'm i think kind of like what meredith was saying is having two parts of the trinity there would quite possibly be confusing to say the least and possibly overwhelming, just having two aspects of God, cause like, I don't know about with Moses and all that, when God was there, if that was all three parts or what. But, I mean, I can see it being just overwhelming. So it's not like a law that God has to sort of thing, but more like a, for your own health and safety, I'm going before he comes so your head doesn't explode, sort of, <laughs> you know. That's as good an explanation as any, Jeff. I mean, that that's, yeah, that that's possible. That's possible. Obviously, in eternity, we'll be in the presence of God, all all three of his persons. You know it will make more sense to us, and they'll all be together. But as you point out, our heads will not explode in eternity. We'll be in a different place then. so <laughs> okay, yeah. so this is interesting, Jeff. In light of what you just said, his next sentence is fascinating to me. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. It is kind of like he's saying, I could keep talking, but this is already almost more than your brains will explode, right? I could keep going, but you can't handle more. It could mean emotionally too, right? If I get into the details of what's going to happen to me, you won't be able to bear it. But it could also just mean, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about me, we're talking about the advocate, we're talking about the future. If I keep talking, you're just it's going to be too much for you. So I think that's interesting in light of what you just said, Jeff, that might be what's happening. It's also interesting to me, he says this. And then after he comes back to life, we're told he spends 40 days with the apostles. And I do wonder if that's a little bit of now they can take some more information. Now they can now they can bear more because they've seen him come back to life. Their whole, you know, their brain has shifted pretty significantly at that point. And, and so maybe that's, you know, some of it is then he's able to come back and share more. But he goes on, he says, I can't say more to you now. I can't explain more to you because you can't handle it. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So even that, the idea of guiding us into all the truth, not just tell you, not just flood you with the information, but take you progressively there. That also fits a little bit what you're saying, Jeff, not not specifically about whether we can handle two parts of the Trinity at once, but specifically the idea that there's, there's a progression to our understanding and the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. They just need to trust him to do it at his pace and his time. And the application for us is that that seems to be true still, that the Holy Spirit takes us on a lifelong guidance into truth. Sometimes I want to understand things more quickly. And then I realize that God is doing it exactly in the order and timing and patience and gentleness and pressure, all done exactly the way it needs to be done. That there are things I know today that I wish I'd known 20 years ago, but I don't think I could have known 20 years ago. I don't think I could have borne it, so to speak. Um, and so I, I I like that. I think that that fits really well. He goes on and he says he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. This is very similar to what Jesus said about himself and his role with us that he just spoke with the Father spoke. The more I think about that, that there's a little bit of authority and submission there for Jesus and the Spirit both, but that might be the wrong way to think about it. I, I was just thinking recently, the more I think about it, the more that's really just a, I mean, there is some submission there because he says he will only speak what he hears. But it's also just a statement of the clear unity of the Trinity. In other words, the Spirit's not going to say anything. The Father—it's not like the Spirit has any desire to say anything that the Father wouldn't want to say, or Jesus ever had any desire to do that. So yeah, there's a, a little bit of submission and role, but it's also just a complete unity. Of course, they're all united and saying the same things, and never going to say anything that the other—that—that—that—that that, 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 that God is united with Himself, right? He's going to say only the right things and not contradict Himself. So I think there's a lot of that in there. He says, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So Jesus is like, I've given you some warning, but the Holy Spirit will give you more. He'll, he'll help you more and understand more. This is as much as I can tell you now. The Holy Spirit, again, is better than me for this job because he doesn't just tell you, he'll actually guide you. And he'll guide you from the inside. And in that way, he'll let you know more about what's gonna happen. He will glorify me, just as Meredith said, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. I don't have a clue what that means. Um, I, I don't understand that interaction at all. If someone else does, you can tell me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. Again, Father and I are one. We are the same. It's not just the Father has given me everything that's his. It, 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 I am I am one with him. God says basically here, all that belongs to God belongs to God. Uh, and so that's not a big surprise. Jesus says all that belongs to the Father belongs to me because I am God. Uh, that is why I said the Spirit will see for me what he will make known to you. Again, he seems to think that explained it. I still am a little confused about that. Uh, I guess he's just saying the Spirit and the Father and Jesus are united. If nothing else, he is saying that. That again, what the Spirit teaches you, you can trust, is coming from me. Maybe that's the point, because they need to know that the Spirit, Jesus is the one they sort of trust on a visceral level right now, maybe they need to know that the Spirit will be saying exactly what Jesus would say. Maybe that's kind of his point. Um, anyway, that's where I kind of end up there. Okay, John 16, verse 16 through 33. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, you'll see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. This is amazingly straightforward, right? But it but still sounds confusing. It doesn't, I mean, he's going to die in between there. But nonetheless, uh, it's kind of straightforward. Look, here's the deal. I'm going to be gone, but I'll be back. Okay, fair enough. True. Um, but even though it's pretty straightforward, in light of everything else he said, it's very confusing. Why is he going? Where is he going? Why does he keep telling us this? What is happening? What We don't understand the plan anymore, Jesus. You just said a bunch of stuff about you being gone. Then you said you'll be gone, but then you'll be back. What is happening? And you said people are going to hate us. They're just, they're just kind of overwhelmed right now, and we see that. He says this pretty straightforward statement, and then it says this. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. What does he mean he's going to the Father? What is he talking about? What does all this mean? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Fair enough. Uh, he's, he's given them information overload. Um, and but it's all stuff they're going to come back to and that's the thing, even the fact that John records this shows that it's all stuff they came back to, right? It's stuff that John is thinking about differently as he's writing it, but when it was happening, he was just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Well, something important is happening, but we do not get it and and all we're hearing is that Jesus is going to be gone and that's kind of scaring us but maybe a little while means he's only going to be gone like for a little while. You know, I think they're just trying to sort out what it all means Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, but they're also, for whatever reason, they're they're afraid to ask him. They're just talking among each other. Jesus saw they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, "Are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices." Now, with the number of times he's told him he's going to die, this does clarify what he meant. He's saying you will—I mean, kind of—because he's still how how does he come back after this? But He's saying to them, yeah, when I say you will see me no more, I mean I'll be dead. I mean you'll be grieving me as dead at least. Uh, He says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Uh, Well, okay, I'll be gone a little while, but then I'll come back. Maybe they're not connecting it to death because, again, that's a big ask, to see death as Jesus is dying and coming back to life. Maybe they're able to see that because they did see Lazarus, but, again, to raise yourself is a big deal. It's even bigger than raising someone else. It feels... You know, quant- quantitatively harder. Um, so he says, but but maybe they just think he's saying I'll I'll be gone and you'll be sad, but then I'll be back and you'll be happy, which is what he's saying. But again, we know there's a lot more substance to that in the in the resurrection, in the crucifixion and resurrection. He goes on and he gives them an analogy. He says a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. He says like there's nothing harder. In a sense, for a woman than those labor pains. And yet the joy that she experiences when she holds her baby is so great that she forgets all that pain. And I think this is meant to be an encouragement to them. You're gonna feel a lot of pain. You're gonna be weeping and grieving, and the world's gonna be rejoicing, and it's gonna be the worst thing you've ever experienced. You're gonna not, you're gonna be lost, you're gonna be confused, you're gonna be terribly, terribly sad, you're gonna feel completely defeated. But know, know that it's just labor pains, and that the joy you're going to experience at the end of that is going to wipe away the pain. And I am absolutely positive that when Jesus came back to life, it made all the pain of his death seem inconsequential. Uh, You can absolutely see how that's true, because there's no greater joy than realizing he resurrected, that he did, in fact, come back to life. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you receive and your joy will be complete. So first, he's just saying, I am going to be gone and I am going to be back. But then he's also saying, and this goes back to when he goes back to the Father, I think, you've, you've never asked the Father for things based on my authority. You've asked me for things based on my authority. Perhaps you've prayed to the Father based on his authority, but then you will understand that my authority is equivalent to the Father's authority. We have equal authority because I am God. And so when you understand that, you will ask the Father for things. You will pray to God for things in my authority. You will know that that makes sense to do that. And so that's what he's saying to them, that that's what's going to happen. And there will be a lot of joy in that because you will know I'm alive because you will know my authority is real because you know my name is still significant I won't be washed up I won't be defeated I won't be a failure I won't be another false messiah you're going to have this incredible joy because you will have seen me victorious and know that nothing can take that away from you once you've seen me come to life nothing can take that away it is one of the the really good proofs of the resurrection it's one of the most convincing ones to me to be honest when you when you talk about you know this is a, this is an amazing historical thing where We're asking people to believe that Jesus came back to life and uh, amazing historical facts need amazing evidence. And one of the things that is very persuasive to me is that you have a bunch of apostles, a bunch of people, just 11 people plus Saul. So 12 and then ultimately even more, but, but 12 people because Saul did see the resurrected Jesus. So you have 12 people who went to their graves telling people they had seen Jesus alive. And if it was a lie, And they knew it was a lie. There's no reason they would have taken it to their graves because there's no hope past the grave. They would have said, "What? I don't get prestige. I don't get power. I don't win an argument. I don't. I don't get anything if I take this to my grave. I should just. I should just recant. I should pretend I never had it." And it's interesting that later believers struggle with recanting their faith when faced with persecution, but not a single apostle ever does. And why? Because they saw Jesus. They walked with him. He goes on. He says, "Though I have been speaking figuratively." A time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language. Even the talking about the woman and the childbirth and the joy, it's all, it's all figurative language because Jesus, when he speaks plainly, they don't understand it anyway. Because uh, again, the idea of death and resurrection is huge. Uh, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. I think what he's saying is the time is coming when you will plainly understand I am God. And you will know that asking the Father for something is the same as asking me for something. And you will know that you don't have to ask me for something through the Father or the Father something through me. You'll you'll know that I'm God. And the God that loves you me loving you is the same father that loves you. We're we're, we're the same. And you'll be able to understand that better. You won't now. It's all figurative. But at some point, you will see that the father and I truly are one um, in ways that you can't comprehend right now. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. So, you know, he's saying there will come a day when I, it, it's pretty funny. He speaks straightforward. They say, we don't understand you. Then he speaks in a figure of speech and then says, there will come a day when I won't speak in a figure of speech anymore. And they say, well, you're pretty clear now. I, I think they're just saying, you you are speaking in, in much clearer terms than you than you did. We are starting to understand that there's going to be great grief. Maybe we're even starting to understand that you're telling us you're going to die. We're wrestling with that, but we're hearing you. You do seem to be pretty clear. But what we are hearing most of all is we're hearing, we are getting that your authority and the Father's authority are the same. And that is starting to dawn on us that you are telling us you're actually claiming to be God. And and we're starting to see that now, I think is what they're saying, because this is what they say. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you a question. This makes us believe that you came from God. And I think they're getting as close as they can to saying, you are God. Um, And he says, do you now believe? Jesus replied, I think this question, by the way, can be read a couple of different ways. One is, oh, you finally believe? I don't think that's what he means. I actually think he's skeptical. I think he says, do you now believe? And he means you think you do, but you don't quite. You don't quite get it all yet. You think that you've suddenly got it all, but you're still just a, a little bit away. You're not quite ready to... To bite the whole meal that I am God, that I am gonna die, that I am gonna come back to life. You're not quite there yet. He says, Do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. Again, his point being, y- you don't quite believe yet. And you're gonna see that. You're gonna feel the sting of your faithlessness. You're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna be scattered. It's still gonna happen. I know you feel good right now. You feel like you've got it. It's not gonna be very long before you're gonna be doubting everything I've just said. And, but he's telling them, you know, it, it's okay. And this is why he says it's okay. You will leave me all alone. That's kind of terrible. But yet I'm not alone, for my father is with me. So I think what he's saying to them is, no, you don't, you don't really get it yet, but that's okay because I have the father. And, and I've already given you encouragement that you'll be back. I've already told you that, that this is not the end. And that's what he says. Everything he's just said was not to discourage them, not to make them afraid, not to make them terrified, not to confuse them even, although all of those things may have happened a little bit. His main point, he says, is this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying bottom line is, look back at everything I've said, it's all an encouragement that you won't be alone. It's all an encouragement that I have overcome the world, that you think it will look to you like I've been defeated, but that is the moment at which I have gained my greatest victory. You may not get it now. You may not get it then, but eventually you will. And to the degree that I've seeded the idea in your heads, it will carry you through the suffering even now. So understand that. Take comfort. Have peace in me. Trust me. You don't even have to understand it all, but just trust me. All right, before we jump into chapter 17, any uh any comments or thoughts, questions?
2: I was thinking that I don't know their their persecution is kind of well, it's definitely different than ours, but like I was just kind of thinking about like what it would be like cuz a lot of their persecution actually happens like from like Jewish people and well at least that's a lot of what we hear about and then it's like which is also kind of weird because it's like kind of part of their religion you know and I don't know I was just kind of thinking about that because you know when we like talk and think about like I guess I don't need to do this while I'm talking um (laughs) when we talk about you know like um persecution you know it's like People not believing in God or like another religion or just like somehow. I mean, I guess it's still like the power in like the identity and and stuff like with that too. But yeah, and no, I was just kind of thinking about because like when they get like a lot of times Paul like his greatest per- persecutions like when he like goes like to a synagogue or like something like that. I mean, they don't have they do have it like when like they um cast the demon out of the slave girl but well yeah. and it's
0: the romans that put paul in prison and beat him
2: that's true yeah and then it that's more about yeah that's a good
1: point well and for jewish people who don't believe that jesus is the messiah it's complete heresy it's a perversion yeah. of it's a direct perversion of what of the jewish faith to them And so I think it makes sense that they would be the most, not even the most, because the Roman government is very oppressive, I think, but that they would be highly um, opposed to Christianity. Because either they believe it's true or they believe it's like an abomination of their faith, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're a believer who's devout, you only have one of two choices. You can't be in the middle your choice is mm-hmm. either you're a believer that Jesus is the Messiah or you're a believer that Jesus is kind of demonic and those are those are kind of your options and there is no middle ground you know the romans or or maybe not the roman government the roman government's oppressive that's just a whole other thing but the but the other gentiles they could take a middle ground they can be like we don't care about these inner sect wars between jews what do we care who they think is their messiah and who isn't right it's not a big deal to them i would say that uh, but, but either way, Jesus would say the same thing. He would say, "Of those Romans who are persecuting you, of those Gentiles who are persecuting you, and of those Jews who are persecuting you, they don't know the Father. They don't know God. They may think they do if they're the Jews, but they know. God would say, of Saul, you don't know me, right That's why he's like, Why are you persecuting me? You think you're persecuting, you think you're persecuting on behalf of God, but you're persecuting me. You don't know God. You don't know God. So that still fits everything that he said here. Whether it's Jews or Gentiles, they're they're all in the same camp. And that's where it goes back to the statements Jesus made like you're either for me or against me. That becomes more and more clear under the persecution. Um,
2: yeah, I guess in all those senses yeah, it would be just kind of like like people that face like persecution now. No, I was uh, just kind of thinking about it and I just like kind of yeah.
0: The other thing I would say just, just that came to mind, it's not a, a a refutation of anything you said, but another thing that just came to mind as you were talking is that kind of persecution does still exist across the world, just not so much right here. Again, I do think we have a level of persecution. There are people who treat us differently and 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 that does happen. It, it does. And it's important we don't take it personally and recognize it's about Jesus and all that. But even the the level of you believe in Jesus we're going to kill you that 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 happens that's happening today across the world so there is mm-hmm. still that kind of persecution that exists and i think it's it's relevant and important to realize that that is still that is still a thing for sure
2: yeah well and i guess with ours too i mean there still is i mean it's not really persecution but like you have like different like denominations and it's kind of like looking down like on another one or whatever or this is the yeah
0: yeah uh, I mean, where, where it doesn't relate. I to... mean,
2: I'm not really talking about persecution with yeah. that, but yeah, I mean, just the, I guess that would still kind of be, I don't know, I, I guess just into... human
0: nature. Yeah. And it gets more into some of the judgment that Paul talks about among believers that we should be really careful about when we start looking at each other and saying, I'm, I'm more righteous than you. Okay. So chapter 17 is a prayer. Um, and I, anytime there's a prayer in Scripture, I find it fascinating. Number one, that that God decided the recording of a prayer was worthwhile. You know, we have we have Nehemiah's prayer, we have Daniel's prayers. You know, we have Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. Even we, occasionally, we have prayers that are recorded. Obviously, the Psalms a lot of times are prayers. I think it's fascinating because it's such a it's such a personal, intimate thing that God thinks it's valuable for us to see prayers. In the case of Jesus's prayer, it's it's fascinating to me. Because Jesus even says in the midst of his prayer that he's doing something a little bit unusual. He's praying out loud in front of people. And remember, this is the guy who said, not that it's wrong to pray out loud, but he, he's the guy who said, look, pray in your prayer closet. You know, it's, it's you and God, and you don't want to show off in front of other people. So he's not showing off. He acknowledges in the middle of his prayer. We'll get there. He acknowledges in the middle of his prayer. I know it's weird that I'm praying out loud to, in front of people in a sense but he says i'm doing it for them i'm doing it so that they'll hear it's kind of like two things are happening or several things are happening in this prayer one is jesus is praying that's actually absolutely happening number 2 is jesus is praying out loud so that the people around him will hear what's important to him in his prayers they will hear what he is worried about or concerned about or wants to pray about and number 3 i think he's giving them a picture of his relationship with the father now Again, that's a little bit murky because we get into the Trinity issues, but but nonetheless, it gives us some picture of the relationship between the Father and Jesus. And so by praying out loud, he's giving them a glimpse into that, something they probably haven't often seen. Um, and so even as he's doing, and then, and then up in that second one, I didn't mention this, but as far as because he wants them to hear his priorities, it is a prayer of someone who's about to leave. He is praying things like, I know that I won't be here for them. So, Father, you need to provide for them. You need to protect them with these things because I will not be physically here. So, as we read this, that's kind of, see those, the, uh, I just wanted to alert you to kind of those those reasons, those interesting facets about the fact that he's praying out loud. It says this, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Okay, we're here. This is it. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Again, they glorify each other. Makes sense. God is glorifying himself. No, no, no member, no person of the Trinity is going to work at cross purposes. Um, The glorification of the father, the glorification of the son, those are all, uh, you know, shared uh, purposes. Glorify your son. But again, also that what's about to happen, it's back to when Jesus said, after Judas left, he said, now the son is glorified. He's connecting his glory to these weird things like his death. So when he says the hour has come, glorify your son. He's actually praying about his death. Now, he's also praying about the resurrection, probably, but the death is is a glorious thing because of what it accomplishes. The angels themselves are amazed at the sacrifice that Jesus makes and why he makes it and the power behind it. So, he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Um, Again, lots of mechanics I can't explain, uh, but he's also trying to speak in a human language as he's praying. So all of this has got to be filtered through that. But the bottom line here is he's he's acknowledging that he has authority. He has authority over all people to give them eternal life. That's clearly a God authority. God does not give that authority people who aren't God. (laughs) So even that in that prayer, he's saying, yeah, that's who I am. I have authority over all people for eternal life. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. The hour has come, the work is wrapping up, we're we're, we're, at the end game here. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Again, for those cults that argue, and if they want to pick and choose lines out of this prayer to do that, they can. Like, um, the work you gave me to do, or the fact that he says the only true God and Jesus Christ. Sometimes they want to pull that apart and say, "See, he's not God," but then he wraps he wraps it up and by saying, "I have been with you in your presence before the world began." He is, he he is, and and again, there's other much more clear passages. But the point is, he's even here acknowledging his divinity. People hearing this, the Jews hearing this. They understand the only presence before the world began is God himself. The only creator is God himself. And so he says, I had that glory with you. So even this, it's not like he was a human who now has achieved a place of glory. He says, I had this glory from you for all eternity. Now I've been on earth, which is a less glorious position. It's like I've given up, as Paul says later, the form of deity in order to to live as a human, which is really demeaning in some ways. Now I'm returning to the glory that I've always had, um, is what he's saying. Which again, for, he's praying this out loud. They're hearing these, if nothing else, it's filling them with a sense of mystery and awe. And I think that's important. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. I, I've done the job. Part of my job was to share who you were, to show people who God is, who the Father is. We are one. So when they see me, they see you. I have revealed to you, you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes for you, from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They're beginning to see my true nature. They're beginning to understand everything I've been saying. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. Now, that's encouraging for the apostles. Here he is praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. At this moment, I'm not praying for those pe- people who don't believe in me, I'm praying for the people that are mine, that, that are under the, that authority of eternal life, that people that have accepted you and therefore accepted me or accepted me and therefore accepted you. I am praying for those people. That's what I'm praying for, my people, the, the sheep at this moment, um, for they are yours. Uh, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. Again, we are one. We own everything the same. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of of your name. Now, this is interesting. Again, this is an actual prayer. He's praying for their protection, but it's also he knows they're hearing him, and it mirrors everything he just told them, that I'm leaving, that they're going to be here in the world, and I'm going to be with you, but I'm not going to leave them alone, and they're going to have protection. And so his prayer is simply, uh, not simply, but it is also, a reiteration of everything you shared with them. And then he says, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Okay, here's the thing. The, the, the idea of your name and praying in somebody's name and doing something in somebody's name, it throughout the scriptures and throughout m- much of culture throughout throughout history, it means to do something by someone's authority. If I do something in the king's name, it doesn't mean I'm doing something literally, you know, using George, or Richard, or whatever the name, Henry, whatever the name of the king is, it it doesn't have anything to do with that. It means I'm doing it by the king's authority. So even when Jesus talks about praying in Jesus' name, he means you're praying by Jesus' authority. That's what he means, which is the authority of God. And so when he says this, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, what he means is, protect them by the power of authority, the authority that I also have the authority I've always had, but on this earth, in this role, even as a human being, I still had that authority of God. I laid aside the deity. I laid aside the form of deity, but you still, as the Father, gave me the authority to save them, to protect them, to shepherd them. And so that's what he's saying, protect them by the power of of your authority, which is the same authority that I've always had, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me, by that authority. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Judah was, Judas was lost, um, and, and it was prophesied, and they knew that that would happen because Jesus was going to die. So all of this is just, he's, he's assuring them, again, in his prayers, he's acknowledging that he has the authority of God because he's God. Only God does not grant his authority, total authority, to anybody. Uh, he has the authority of God because he is God, and as he walked this earth, he had a specific role. He had a specific authority that divine authority played out, and it was to protect these apostles, to lead them, to guide them, to shepherd them, and to bring them to this place. And he did it. He didn't lose any of them. They're all still here, and that would be really encouraging as an apostle to hear. We're not a secondary. We're not an afterthought. We're not a. We're not a just a, a an accident. Jesus chose us, remember? He did that from the very beginning. He went out and chose people. He chose us and he walked with us and he protected us. And now to realize that we were part of his mission, we were part of the reason he's here was us, us specifically, me specifically. He's just, I think that would be really encouraging to them. And then he says, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. It's like Jesus saying, look, I know we're going to be together soon. You already know everything I'm thinking and we'll be talking. You know, all that is true but I'm saying these things out loud so that they will know. Now, is he saying that to the father because the father doesn't know that? No, he's even saying that so that they will know that. So that as they're listening to him pray, he's saying, why am I doing it this way? Because I want you guys to take comfort and joy from what I'm sharing. I want you to understand that I am rejoicing in what's about to happen. I know it's terrible and I will also grieve and you will grieve, but as Hebrews says, it's also for the joy set before me. And I want you to have some measure of that. Really, I'd like you to have the full measure of that. Maybe someday you will. But right now, I just want to encourage you and give you a sense of the joy that I feel even as we approach this place. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they not they are not of the world anymore than I am of the world. I'm not really of the world. I created the world. I'm God. Guess what? You're not of the world either anymore because you're part of the kingdom of God. But instead of saying that to them, he's already said it to them. But now instead of saying it, he's praying it to the Father. He's reinforcing it in his prayer. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. This is very applicable to us as well to remember that we are not of the world. We don't belong to the world. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. But God hasn't chosen to take us out of the world yet. We're still in the world. So we're in the world, but we don't belong to the world. So it's, we should take heart in the fact that we're, we're protected. God protects us. He has protected us. He's died on the cross to protect us from the evil one. And so we live in this world, but not as people who belong to this world. And we, that absolutely is what it means to live, to be a Christian, to be a member of the kingdom of God, is to remember that our allegiance and our citizenship is to somewhere else. Now, that doesn't mean, in fact, Paul says it means we should be good citizens of the you know, world that we live in as well, but our, our most important allegiance and the allegiance that overrides all other allegiances is our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And we don't belong to the world. We're just here. We're like ambassadors, Paul says later. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, and I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay, bottom line here, I think what Jesus is saying is, look, I had a mission, now they have a mission. And I'm sending them out. And in the same way that you and I have been united in this mission, you and they are united in this mission as well. And I and they are united in this mission and you will protect them because they're part of this mission and that's great. Also, I'm going to the cross to sanctify myself, to complete my role, to consecrate my mission so that they also may be truly sanctified. This is being done so that they can be those people as well. And then he says this amazing thing. Here we are listening in on his prayers to the apostles. Recognizing that the things he says do apply to us as well, and then Jesus speaks across time, 2,000 years across time to us in his prayer. He wants us to hear him too, because John records it, and this is what John records him praying My prayer is not for them alone, I pray for also for those who will believe in me through their message. I hope you feel just a little bit of a shiver, a little bit of a sense of awe that Jesus prayed for you in this passage. And by the way, whether that means specifically your name or not, he sure could, he's God. He could be praying for you specifically at this moment. I don't have any problem with that idea. But even if it's generally, it's still you. He's praying for everybody who believed because of the apostles' message. That's you. So the things he prayed for them, he now acknowledges. And again, why say this out loud? So that we'll hear it, so that we'll read it so that we'll know Jesus had a moment where he prayed that you would recognize your mission and your protection and your unity in Jesus with Jesus and with all the other people in the mission. It's to me it's a little bit of a spine tingling moment. I just I, I really kind of love it.
1: I too I told Aurora um, earlier and said my name's in the Bible you're going to see it. <laughs> and for this passage right here yeah. You know, and um, I just love this section because, yes, he is praying for me. And I have taken such great comfort in that. And yes, Jolene, your name's there, too.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I I, I get the sense of awe about that. I think it's, it's yeah. really, really cool. Um, so he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you' are in me, and I am in you. He's praying for our unity, which is a big thing too. Um, and and earlier, I didn't point this out, but earlier when he was talking about in my name, so that you and I are one, he, he really points out that our unity is in the authority of Jesus. And that is a reiteration throughout Scripture throughout the New Testament that, What our unity is based on is not on all thinking the same or having all the same ideologies, not even having the same understandings—Paul is really clear about this—not even having the same understandings theologically about all things. We can disagree on even what Scripture says at times, and that's okay. It doesn't disrupt our unity, because what our unity is based on is the authority of Jesus. As long as we both agree that I don't have authority over you, and you don't have authority over me, and I don't have authority over me, and you don't have authority over you, but Jesus has authority over it all, as long as we remember that, then our unity cannot be disrupted. And that's part of what what he's praying here. I want them to see that, to remember that, to cling to that. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Again, Jesus is granting his glory to us. What does that mean? Well, I think it looks like our unity. It looks like our understanding that he has authority. It looks like our understanding that everything we do is in his name or in his authority. And as we do that, then we're glorified as he's glorified. And we're united together because nothing can can get in between that as long as that's our focus. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now, this is an interesting sentence and the grammar doesn't parse any clearer in Greek than it does in English to my understanding. In other words, it's a little unclear who the them refers to. He said, and by the way, both ways to read it are encouraging. So it could go either way, but this is what he says. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them does them mean the world or does them mean the apostles who are living in, or the all of us the believers who are living in unity it could mean either one right it could be he's saying the world will know that you sent me and have loved the the disciples even as you have loved me kind of going back to the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another that's possible it could also be saying as we are united under Christ's authority then the message of the gospel becomes clear then the world will know that Jesus was sent by God, was sent by the Father, and the world will know that they are loved, because that's why Jesus came, was because he so loved the world that, that, that he died on the cross for us. I think both are true, and maybe Jesus meant both in this prayer. It's not clear. Either is fine. Both are true, and that's really encouraging. So, our unity under the authority of Jesus, not just generic unity, not just we're just going to you know whatever grin and bear and try to be together definitely not that we're going to think all the same thoughts do all the same actions not even that we're going to all honor exactly the same creeds we we failed at that and i think paul even told us we were going to fail at that when we get to actually it's in romans uh so some of you who are in romans on sunday nights will get there but when we get there in the journey too we'll see that he says that he essentially says yeah if you're true to your faith you're going to you're going to have disagreements you're going to fail to all agree with the same things. But if we cling to our authority, if we cling to our unities in Jesus, that he is God, he is king, he is Lord, he is Messiah, he is the one who loves us, if we cling to all that, then our unity will be apparent, and the world will understand the gospel, and the world will understand that they are loved. That's That's kind of what I think he's saying here. He goes on, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, And to see my glory the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world again back to he's been here forever he is an eternal figure because he is god Um, but he's also saying i want i want the the disciples i want the the apostles again is he just talking about them i think at this point it's okay to assume that most of what he's praying for them he also means for us so uh, all the believers all the church all the people he wants the church to be with him that's why he's preparing a place for us for all eternity to be together, to experience the glory and the unity that the Father and the Son have, albeit in a slightly different way because we're not God, but in an equally united way. Uh, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. This goes. This is where he's saying to God what he said to the apostles from the other end. To the apostles, he said, "If you know me, you know the Father." So to the Father, he says, "I know you, and because of that, they know you. Um, I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known." in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. I think it's important here. I I think there's a distinction. When he says the love you have for me may be in them, I don't think he means there that you will love them. I think God does love them, does love us. But I think he means that the love you have for me will be in them, that they will have God's love, that they will share a love that comes from you and from me, the kind of love that we have, that kind of healthy, secure, mature love which we can experience thanks to the Holy Spirit, even though we're still flawed and we still can't sort of drum it up. We can't make it happen. It, it kind of appears in bursts and spurts. And, I, and we'll see that uh, as we go through some of Paul's letters. He kind of talks about how that happens, I think. Um, so anyway, that takes us up to the garden. Uh, so we'll end there. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.